Heavenly Father, we thank You for this morning. We give You all the glory, praise, and honor that's due Your name. Lord, we, we humbly come before You and ask that You would pour out Your Spirit upon us, Lord. I pray as we get into Your Word, that Your Word would get into us, Lord. I pray that our hearts would be open and receptive to the seed of Your Word, that we would yield to every bit of its uh, commands and directives, Lord. I pray that by Your Spirit, Lord, we would be uh, just changed and different when we leave, Lord. Um, I pray that uh, You would be glorified here, and I pray that as we uh, end the service with communion, Lord, that our, our hearts would just be so sensitive to Your will and so sensitive to Your presence, Lord, that we would just be overwhelmed and in a, in a place of just uh, all that matters is you, Lord. And help the, help the things of this world fade away now and let our hearts be uh, focused and tuned in to what you have to say. And we pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. 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 Before down, can you say hello to a couple of people, please? All right, you may be seated, everybody. Come on in. All right, well, good morning. If you have your Bibles this morning, please take them out and turn to the book of Luke, chapter 5. If you need a Bible, there should be Bibles underneath the seats. And while you're turning there, I just want to give you a few announcements, a few things going on in and through the church, if you're ready for that. And by the way, you can uh, hear and see everything that we're um, talking about this morning as far as announcements online or our bulletin, you check that out. So first off, uh, there is going to be a also, uh, Wednesday night, this Wednesday night, we're back in the book of Romans, and uh, we're at, in chapter 8, so if you want to read ahead on that, that's what we'll be covering, and probably just chapter 8 this Wednesday. I've been a little ambitious, maybe too ambitious, of how much we're going to get, and I'm, I'm having trouble making it through all the uh, scriptures that we want to get and rushing through them. And I just felt like chapter 8 of the book of Romans, we can treat that all by itself. And um, chapter 7 last week, again, that was just a very, very important chapter for every believer to know. Uh, so you can get that online if you weren't here, either YouTube or go to our website. And by the way, if you didn't know, we, all of our teachings from Genesis to Revelation, verse by verse, line by line, it's, we have all of that. We've gone through uh, the whole Bible, and um, we've done that on Wednesday night, and we do that on Sundays, but you can listen to any part of the Bible. I think, I'm pretty sure it's all up there. Um, most of it's on YouTube. All of it is on our website. And so if you're ever wanting to listen to a Bible study or listen to or get into a particular text of Scripture, then you can always go to our 
website and YouTube to, to look at those and listen to those. Um, so that's that. Um, let's see what else we have. We have a pretty uh, big month of September. We have two retreats. Um, the women's retreat is September 7th through the 9th. And uh, we haven't done one of those in a little while. So I know there's a lot of enthusiasm and excitement about that. They are taking signups in the foyer today. And there's a $55 deposit to put down to save your spot. And then the men's retreat is coming up September 30th to October 1st. So just a couple things to save the date and... Um, for the women's, you need to sign up. You can sign up for the men's, too. There's a few spots available um, for that as well, from what I'm told. Um, then, also, uh, June 18th is Father's Day. And uh, I'd like to just remind you that uh, we started a tradition last year of Hawaiian shirt uh, Father's Day. So I want to invite you all, the women and men, to wear a Hawaiian shirt or a Hawaiian print dress and that will be a way to honor fathers. So that's how we're going to honor fathers um, on that day. So that's that. And then the last thing is today is the big day for our baptism. So I want to invite everyone there. It's at 1.30 Jackson Pavilion at Lake Grapevine. And there's going to be a lot of food for you. But that's not what's the main thing. The main course is that you have your brothers and sisters in the congregation that are going to get baptized. And so that's important for those that are not getting baptized to go and celebrate that as well. And in that regard, I'd like to read a quote from that old Anglican pastor, preacher, J.C. Ryle, who said, Never ought there to be such joy, gladness, and congratulation as when sons or daughters or brethren or sisters or friends are born again and brought to Christ. And so this is our time to celebrate and rejoice for those that are getting baptized. Uh, a couple things in regards to that, and um, a lot of people um, throughout the last few weeks have been asking should they get baptized? What is baptism and all that? So we've been talking about that. We've been showing you videos of our last couple baptisms, which, by the way, the church has paid for the entrance fee, so you don't have to pay. You'll go to the tower or the gate at Rockledge Park, and then just tell the person at the gate that you're with the church, and they'll let you in, and they'll direct you to where we need to go. Uh, the forecast is potentially scattered showers, maybe some rain. We're not going to let that bother us. The good thing is uh, the, there's a large pavilion that's covered. And so that'll uh, keep us insulated if we need to be insulated from rain. But maybe you want to go out in the rain. Um, if there's lightning, that's another issue. But who cares about rain? But we're going to go down into the lake and we're going to baptize uh, those people who have decided to make a public profession of their faith. So, a couple things about baptism. Who should be baptized? Every born-again believer should be baptized. Baptism does not save one. Baptism is for one who is saved. It's an outward...
sign of something that has transpired inwardly in that person. So that's the what, the what of a baptism. It, it is a testimony of what has happened spiritually in a person's life. And that's why the way we do baptism is a particular way. That's why we don't sprinkle people, which is not in the Bible. That's why we dunk people, which is in the Bible. The word baptism means dunk or immerse. And why is that important? Because baptism symbolizes, as a person goes down into the water, they are dying to themselves. It's like a coffin. And we have a policy at our church that we actually lift them up out of the water too. And we do that because that's biblical as well. Because when they go under, they are saying, I have died to my old life, but now I'm coming alive to my new life. And I've been washed and cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And now I come and emerge from that water as a new person in Christ. And that, that's why baptism is done the way it's done. So the why, why should one be baptized? Two things. One, out of obedience to the Lord. Two, uh, as a testimony and a public profession of what the Lord has done in your life. Uh, we talked about the, the how, uh, a couple miscellaneous um, items. Uh, what's the age someone should be baptized? Is there an age that's too young or too um, old? There's not an age that's too old, but for children. We always say that we don't, it's, it's hard to fix an actual. It, what's more important is that the child is born again. And they're born again of their own volition, not because the, their parents are really putting pressure on them, but out of the desire of their heart that they are born again. And in order for that to happen, they have to understand the gospel. So if they, they understand the gospel and they agree and they um, accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior, then they could be baptized, but they should be able to articulate that too. So that's a good way to know if they really understand what they're doing. And sometimes when we're in the water, we'll ask a, a, little, a little one, we'll ask them if they understand what they're doing, we'll ask them to uh, recite to us what the gospel is, and we'll ask them to uh, tell us uh, what it means to be born again. And so if, if they're able to do that and they've tr they truly are born again, then they, they can be baptized. Um, a couple just tidbits that, that are important. Um, water shoes are helpful, but not necessary. Change of clothes are helpful, but not necessary. Um, and an encouragement to those who aren't getting baptized to come to support and to be a blessing to those who are getting baptized at one of the greatest, biggest, most important days of their life, especially spiritually. And so um, the last thing I remember to say, we'll have food and games there as well, um, but uh, sunblock. A lot of you, it's early summer, and your very sensitive, tender skin hasn't seen the light of day in a long time. And so... Uh, we don't want a bunch of sunburns uh, after. So just that's always good to remember. So that's all I have to say about baptism and our announcements. 
And we are going to finish the service with communion today. So a double header this morning with baptism and communion. So if you have your Bibles, I would like you to draw your attention to the section of Scripture in Luke chapter 5. And the verses from verse 27 to 32, that's what we'll be covering this morning. Luke chapter 5, verse 27 through 32, if you will read with me. After these things, he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office And he said to him, follow me. So he left all, rose up, and followed him. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. And there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And their scribes and the Pharisees complained against the disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so we see this account of Levi, a.k.a also known as Matthew, the writer of the gospel, Matthew, one of the twelve disciples. And we see calling specifically, personally, and individually that Jesus placed on his life. And the call was to follow him. And this morning, as we look at this a little more closely, we have to really ponder what Jesus asks Matthew and what he's asking everyone, inviting everyone to truly be a follower of him. He's he's putting that proclamation and that invitation out to everyone, and he's saying, follow me. And that's what the call is. That's what the thing is. There's a, a lot of times we talk about calling. What's my calling? What calling does God have for my life? Is God calling me to do something? But, but here's the general calling. Here's the net that's being spread out. Here's the opportunity that Jesus is giving in the general calling where all specific individual callings happen as a result of one accepting the invitation to simply follow him. And that's what Jesus asks. It's, it's important to know and understand that is to be a follower of Jesus. And it's easy to make the mistake that, that to be a Christian is just to have a, a mental agreement with some facts about God or facts about the Bible. That's not necessarily what it means to be a Christian, to be saved, to be born again, to be in the kingdom of God, to be a child of God. All those terms are synonymous with a person who's following Him. And that's what God has called us 
to do. So I want to look at that. And if you're taking notes, there's four things that we're going to specifically look at in regards to uh, what it means to follow Jesus. And so number one, we're going to look at the call. Number two, we're going to look at the response. Number three, we're going to look at the joy. And then finally, on number four, we're going to look at the criticism. So let's, let's look at the call first. We'll get in a little deeper as we sort of just walk into this scene of what is going on here. And that's why in verse 27, it starts out with him after these things, which tells us there's a lot of things going on. We're, we're getting right into the, the middle of events that are happening. And so Jesus is in a place called Capernaum. That's an important to know that's a seaside village. What sea? The Sea of Galilee. So the Sea of Galilee, there were a lot of villages around the Sea of Galilee where many people lived. And this is where Jesus spent most of his ministry. And Capernaum, the seaside village, was sort of his headquarters or his home base. So he would stay there. Peter lived there. Andrew lived there. And so he would stay there, and then he'd go out from there around those villages uh, around the area of Galilee. So we left off last week seeing that Jesus healed a paralytic man. And that was very significant. Because Jesus, in the healing of the paralytic man, man was declaring his deity. What does that mean? He was declaring his godness. He was declaring that he is God. He was not only saying, but proving that he was nothing less than God in the flesh. He wasn't a God that became God. He wasn't a God of gods. What he was declaring was that he was the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the very God who brought the world into existence, the very second member of the Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that he who dwelt in eternity past, who had no beginning and had no, has no ending, he came into this world, God with us, Emmanuel, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So that in itself, that truth is just a mind-blowing truth, that God came into the world taking on a human body and lived a life out like a somewhat normal person would live. And why did he do that? Because he had to live a life that lived. And what was that? A sinless life. In order to be a perfect sacrifice for our sins. And so Jesus, through his ministry, and as we've been going through the Gospels, we've been seeing this over and over again, of, of Jesus would go and his primary ministry was to preach the kingdom of heaven and then teach about it. So it was a, a communication message, a message of revelation of truth. In John 8, 30, uh, 32, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And he steps into the world at a particular time in history where it was a very difficult time. The Roman Empire was controlling the whole world and, and then particularly the Jewish people were under great 
oppression even in their own land as their land was occupied. Jesus steps into this scene and as he steps into the scene, he, he comes to a place where he starts his public ministry at 33 years old. And he does it by preaching and teaching, but to go alongside with his preaching and teaching of the God, he does miracles to authenticate that he truly is God. So you have the miracles, and we're talking thousands of miracles. At the end of the book of John, it says that all the books of the world couldn't contain all the things that Jesus did. And so Jesus was doing miracles, and his Miracles were, were measured, they were purposeful, they weren't random, they, they all uh, spoke to cer- a certain point that he was trying to make about who he was. And so he was showing that he had power over all the different things in the world, like um, disease, sickness, he had power over the weather, he had power over the wind and the waves, he had power the spiritual realm over the demonic realm of darkness and he he just kept demonstrating that over and over again and so as he's doing that he's going around the sea of galilee he's he's getting a bigger bigger and bigger following and so we left off last time where he was in capernaum and he was in a house most likely peter's house but we don't know that for sure and he was teaching and preaching and the house was so crowded that there was a man who was paralyzed, and he, he couldn't get into the house. He had four men carrying him on some sort of bed or mat. Couldn't get into the house. It was so crowded, but their faith didn't stop there. They kept going towards Jesus. So they took the stairs, out outdoor stairs that they would have in those days. They took the stairs up to the top of a flat roof where often they would hang out to catch the breeze from the day. And they dug through the roof and lowered the man down. And Jesus said something unusual, something that would have got someone's attention. And he said to this man, your sins are forgiven. The man wasn't coming to have his sins forgiven. He was coming to have his labor work. But he said, your sins are forgiven. And what was he doing when he said that? The, the Pharisees, the religious people, the Jewish religious people of the day, in their hearts, they're, they're saying, how can he say that? What, what, only God can forgive sin. So they, they knew that. And that's what Jesus was doing. He's, he is saying, do you want your sins forgiven? Because he, he's recognizing and realizing that there's a point to be made here. The point now is an opportunity to not only demonstrate that I'm God, but to actually prove it. How can I prove it? As the Pharisees are questioning him, how can he say that? Only God can forgive sins. Then what, what happens is he says, so that you know the Son of Man, which he was using a term from Daniel chapter 7, which referred to the Messiah coming. He said, so that you know I am he, and that I have the ability to forgive sin. I'm going to tell this paralytic man to rise up and walk because he said what's easier to say your sins are forgiven or to stand up and walk he was saying and demonstrating that anybody can say someone's sins are forgiven because you can't prove it but to say stand up and walk if that actually happened then that's evidence and that's proof 
So he's connecting something that he's going to do physically to this paralytic man to something that he's trying to demonstrate spiritually that you can't see. And so he tells this man, rise up and walk. And he did. And he, he did that to demonstrate and prove that he has the ability to forgive sin, which only God can do. So that's when we start this uh, section of Scripture in verse 27. That's what we're doing. We're coming into this scene, verse 27, where he says, uh, after all these things, he went out. So he's, he's, he's moving. He's on the move. He's circulating around. He's going out from the house. Matthew's account of this says that he went by the seashore and all the people are collecting around him at the seashore. And so he's moving from that house and he's going uh, at, at the seashore and people are gathering around him. And then it says, and he saw a tax collector. The word saw is, is noticed or our English word for theater. So this is a particular word. This is a particular thing that's happening. You have all these masses of people and you have this uh, attention and chaos and focus on all these different things. But Jesus zeroed in on this one guy. He noticed him. And I find that very insightful, no pun intended, but very helpful to know that no matter what is going on in the world, that God notices us. And he, he noticed this particular man who, who would have been feeling outside of the scene. So he would have been in, the, in a booth, in a tax collector's booth, and, and he would have been sitting there just watching all the other people sort of partake in the things that are going on. He would have felt like, what was happening with Jesus wasn't for him. Not because he wasn't interested, not because, or, or because he thought Jesus wouldn't be interested in him. So he's, he's in this booth and he's watching Jesus do miracles and he's hearing people praise Jesus and worship Jesus. And, he, and he's thinking, well, I'm watching what's going on. That's interesting, but not... He wouldn't be interested. I'm just too far removed from this man giving me his attention. Why would he think that? Because he was a tax collector. Because this man would walk around amongst his fellow Jews. He was a Jewish tax collector. And they would look at him with disdain in their eyes. Have you ever had somebody look at you like that? Like, they're just disgusted by you. He would have that every day, every day. Every day he'd wake up, he'd be walking to his booth to open this little booth. And people would be looking at him like they're just disgusted with him. They'd want to spit on him. He'd be the lowest of low. He'd be despicable. Why? Because... Tax collectors work for the Roman government. The Romans were in Israel, in the land of the Jews, where they had all their history, and they were controlling that area, and the Jews hated it. And the Jews 
hated that the Romans worshipped many gods. They worshipped false gods. They even worshipped their own Caesars. Their kings, they worshipped them. And they felt oppressed. And, and some Jews, very few, but some, like Levi or Matthew, they would actually sign up to work with the greatest enemy that the Jews had at the time. And not only would they sign up to work for Rome, but their job would be to collect taxes from their own people who hated the Romans. They would be seen as traitors, but not just traitors, even worse than that, because in order to get a tax franchise, it would go to the highest bidder. So they'd have to buy those franchises. The highest bidder would get it. And they would make their money by collecting over and above what the Roman Empire required them to collect. So the Roman Empire had heavy burden of taxes on the people. It made the Jews, it made it impossible for them to get ahead in life. The taxes were so great that they would just basically scratch out a living. But then on top of that, a tax collector would make their own living. They would get their income by collecting above what the Roman government asked them to collect. And so imagine you not being able to feed your kid one day because your own people, a tax collector, is taking from you so much but it's going into his own pocket and he's living in a big house living high on the hog in opulence. And, he, and he's, he has the power of the Roman Empire. He has uh, enforcers, Roman enforcers that will help shake you down for that little money that you have. And Matthew was one of those. And that's why he is in the booth not feeling a part of what was going on. Not feeling that this loving Messiah that people are interested in, these miracles that were happening, would have anything for him. He felt like his religious life was over. He would be banned from synagogue. He could not participate in societal things. He wouldn't be able to uh, testify in a Jewish court. And this was the one that Jesus lasers in on. I believe he made eye contact with him. I believe as Jesus is moving through these masses of people, and these masses of people are interested, I believe Jesus turns and looks at Matthew and has a laser eye contact with him. arresting the attention of Matthew. And we don't have any other words here recorded except for these two words. Follow me. So that's the call. Follow me. He didn't ask him to go to a certain class to earn a certain level of religious attainment. He didn't ask him to go through a religious ceremony or join a church or 
anything like that because the most important thing that was needed was Matthew knew that Jesus cared about him, that Jesus knew him, he noticed him. And Jesus loved him enough to invite him to be part of his kingdom. That would have been shocking, not only to Matthew, but people around. But what Jesus was doing and what he had the ability to do is he, he saw hearts. And so what people would see on the outside, which would cause them to hate Matthew, Jesus would be able to see that in his heart, he was unhappy, he was hurt, he felt there was no hope for him, he felt like in this world was all that he would ever have. And the only way that he was noticed before was to be noticed as a horrible person. And that was the person Jesus looked at and said, follow me. And so there's the call. There's nobody that's too bad, that has done too many bad things to be beyond the call of God. This is the story of the gospel. And sometimes, as we're going to to see as we go further, it's those who have really gotten themselves in a bad place in life that recognize their need more than others. And I believe Matthew was like that. He knew his need. He understood it. And the fact that he was, he was called individually, notice that. This wasn't a, a group calling. He, he looked at him and said, you follow me. It's heavy to think about because Jesus called other people. He called the rich young ruler who didn't answer the call because he didn't want to give up what he had in this world. We saw see other that were called, that would make excuses, and they would say that things like, let me bury my father, meaning I'll follow you once my father dies, and then maybe I'll think about it. Basically just putting it off to another time. You have others who were called to follow him, and they said, well, let me go to my loved ones. In other words, again, just putting it off and making excuses. And those people that Jesus called, different than I think today, they understood what it meant. And that's why they made excuses. And that's why many times today people will give a superficial response to the gospel, but yet not realize what is demanded of a person receiving the gospel, and it's to follow him. And so that's why the excuses were were given. So I think it's very clear for all of us so that you know what you're rejecting or accepting. 
So we're not trying to bait and switch anybody and paint this picture that if you follow Christ, you don't have to change anything in your life and everything will come up roses and unicorns and whatever. It's, you have to know it means to follow Jesus is a heavy call. See that in the next part of the scripture, the response. Look in verse 28. So he left all. He rose up and he followed him. So that's the response. Now when Matthew left all, what does that mean? For him, it meant he to his lucrative tax business. It meant he gave up his livelihood. It meant what he worked so hard to purchase that franchise, that tax franchise, what he worked hard to secure, and it was uh, highly desired because it's one of the few ways you can be rich as a Jewish person. It, it meant that he was leaving that. In other words, you might want to look at it like he was turning his back on what he had been doing. He had been turning, or he was turning his back on his old life. What that suggests to us is that he, he was recognizing how bad he was off spiritually. And he was given the opportunity. He couldn't jump at it fast enough because he recognized he was getting an opportunity that was an opportunity of his life. He was given an opportunity to be relieved of his guilt and his shame. He was given the opportunity to have a fresh start, the opportunity to have a, a, a spiritual life, a life in Christ. And so notice, when we follow Jesus, when we answer his call, there's a turning of ourselves away from our old life to a new life. Now, for Matthew, that meant leaving his profession doesn't necessarily mean that for everyone. But what it does mean is that we would have to be willing to turn our back on anything that God doesn't want in our life. That we would have to change direction in life. What that means is that we are all going in a certain direction. Do you know that? Do you know nobody's in neutral here? We're all going in a direction. We're headed in a direction. We're headed somewhere. That's what that means. Matthew was headed in a direction which ultimately would lead to his eternal destruction. And Jesus talked about a broad road. That leads to destruction. And he also talked about a narrow road. And he says, few find it. And so what Matthew realized 
and no doubt was continually experiencing in his heart, probably out of the notice of many people, is that inside he was hurting. The guilt and the shame and the hurt, the despise, the feeling despicable. And when Jesus gave that invitation, he was willing to go in a new direction. He was willing to follow Jesus. And that's, that's as simple as we can explain it, is when Jesus calls us, we start following him. That's what it means. But in order to do that, in order to follow him, we have to leave everything behind. It's like that hymn, Rock of Ages. It says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. So that's how we come to Jesus. We come with open and empty hands, surrendering our life to Him and allowing Him then to be the director of our life. So when we say it like that, that might seem different than what you're used to hearing. Because there are many false gospels. And there is a great delusion even within the church, may I say especially within the church, that you can just have some mental exercise of agreement with God without a change in direction of your life that you could be saved. But here he tells, or it tells us that, that Matthew, he left it. But then he says, he rose up after that. So, so notice, he's not bringing his tax collecting records and following Jesus. He's not bringing the booth with him. He's not bringing all this baggage. What he's doing is simply presenting himself to Jesus as he is, and he's saying, here I am. I'm here. My life is in your hands now. And that's why it says, then he rose up. Because when he rose up, he didn't have anything anymore. And so he was willing to move or to go or to start a life of following Jesus, leaving his past behind him. And then it says he followed him. So that's what following him means. That's how we do it. We turn our direction in life. And now we say, Lord, my life is in your hands. Lead me, guide me, direct me. I'm yours. That's what we say. I'm yours. That's what it comes down to. And when we say that, our third point is found in verse 29. Look what happens. The joy of this. Then Levi. What did he do? Can you read the next word with me? Just that one word. What did he do? He gave. He's changed already. His life 
was the life of a taker. He would take from people, extort from people. And now as he leaves it all behind, now, now he's giving. This is what happens when God gets a hold of someone's heart. They change from selfishness and selfish ambition to a desire to give. Understanding that it's more blessed than to receive. And, and so the, the first act that we see after he begins following Jesus is an act that now he wants to give. What does he want to give? He wants to give what he now has. So he says, Levi gave him, Jesus, a great feast. So here's something very interesting. Some of you in the first point may have thought, if I have to leave everything to follow Jesus, that sounds terrible. I like all my stuff. I like what's going on. I enjoy it. What do you This is going to be a bummer. I don't want to do that. But let me just tell you something that God is not a debtor to anyone. What we give up for the Lord, he'll replace a millionfold. Most importantly, he replaces, or I should say, gives us those inner qualities and characteristics that the world could never give us. That's what he does. So you realize the things that we do in this world, materialistically or physically, can never bring about what we really want them to bring us. So, for example, money. Money can never bring us love, joy, peace. Money often takes away our peace. Goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, those are the fruit of the Spirit. See, what Jesus offers is what the world often tells us it will give us, but at the end of the day can't deliver on the promise. But see, what God does is he gives us all those qualities, those characteristics, which is what every human being really wants. And they're all found in Jesus to the extent when you have those things inside of you. Those are the things you begin to nurture and live for and enjoy. So Matthew, he wants to celebrate he surrendered to Jesus, and this is an amazing thing, not a terrible thing. He has a new life now, a new life in Christ, and God is not going to be a debtor to him. God is going to meet him and fulfill him in ways that he can never even imagine. And so his expression of joy is to give Jesus this great feast. Why could he give a great feast? Because he had a lot of money. Why did he have a lot of money? Because he's really good money from people so now he's giving a big party a big feast and it says in his own house so we know he had a big house too and it says now there were a great number of tax collectors 
and others who sat down with them. So his house was filled with what the world would deem despicable people. Is filled with them. Now, why would they come? Because Matthew told them, Come to my house. Let's celebrate. I sold my tax franchise. There's hope. There's an answer. There's truth. There's life. There's light. I'm so happy. I'm free. Come to my house and meet the one that set me free. And all those terrible tax collectors. Nothing better to do. Okay, let's go. What else do we have? We have nothing else. Let's go meet this guy. And so you see this, the joy of following Jesus. Don't follow the temptation that Satan's road is better for you. Don't fall in the temptation that the world has a better plan for your life than God does. Anybody who's a true believer in Jesus Christ will testify that their life in Christ cannot be matched by anything that the world can give. So he had a desire to share the greatest thing that ever happened to him in his life. And then finally in verse 30, all of this comes with the price tag. When one begins to follow Jesus, the criticism will come immediately. People will think you're weird. People will think you joined a cult. People will think there's, you've gone mad. People will think you're crazy. So in verse 30, here, here we have it. It says, And their scribes and their Pharisees, they complained against the disciples. And they complain, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? See, they thought these religious people, their idea was that they would be holy and are holy by staying away from unholy people. The word Pharisee means separate. So their idea of holiness would be to stay clear of anybody unholy. And they would look at those who weren't Jews, they would look at them as dogs. They would call them dogs. And they, they would just be thinking everybody's just so gross and despicable and, and stay away from me, don't touch me, don't get near me. And here Jesus is at a party with all of them. And they're questioning, why are you doing that? That's gross, that's sick. How can you eat with tax collector, collectors and sinners? And here's Jesus answer Jesus said to them those who are well have no need of a physician that's his answer if you're well speaking to the Pharisees you don't need a doctor but you know what he's doing he's making the point because right after this he's going to say we're sinners And the Bible tells us we're all sinners. 
So that means we're all not well. You know what he's saying here is that the worst possible condition a person can be in is to be sick and not know it. That's what he means when he says those who are well, they don't need a physician. What he's saying is, if there is someone right now who thinks they don't need to come to Jesus for forgiveness, then what you're saying is, I'm good enough and well enough that I don't need to. That's the sign, the sign that you will not come to Jesus for forgiveness of your sins, for eternal life, for the free gift that he's offering. The reason you wouldn't do that is because you think you're good enough and you don't need to. That's heavy, isn't it? I know there was a time in my life before I became a Christian, I thought I was good enough. I thought I didn't need that. And you often hear people say, oh, that's a crutch and that's good for you. You need it for help yourself psychologically or get through the day. Whatever you need, that's good for you. But that's, that's what this is saying. The great exposure of one's heart is not coming to Jesus thinking you don't need to. And that's what he means when he says, those who are well, they don't need a physician. But then he says, those who are sick, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but I've come to call sinners to what? To repentance. Do you see that? That word repentance means what we're talking about. It means you turn your direction of your life to Jesus. That's what repentance is. So to follow Jesus means that you will turn from the direction you're going to the direction of Jesus. That's repentance. You turn. So we see this, this criticism is met with, with this answer. And it really puts in perspective to us uh, what the, the Bible means about being a Christian and being born again and, and all those different terms. It really means that a person comes to a, a place in their life where they recognize their need and their inability to do anything about their need. They recognize they're sick. They recognize something's not right. They're concerned about eternity. They're maybe being awakened to the things that are happening in this world and realizing that's not the answer. But to just to recognize our condition before God as sinners, meaning we have a disease of our soul, and then to turn to Him because He invites us and to receive His forgiveness is then to set a new course for that person's life and that course that that person's life is on ends, get this, ends, there's, there's an ending to this. With you 
and me looking straight into the eyes of Jesus and him saying to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. That's where the road that Jesus is calling us to follow him on, that's where that leads. And I don't know about you, that's the road I want to be on. And I hope you do too. And so we're just going to take a few minutes as we end the service, we're going to have communion. And as we do that, I just want to point out what communion is. Communion is like baptism in that it's a symbol or something outwardly that we're doing that represents something that happens spiritually. So communion is for a true believer in Jesus Christ. Why is that? Because when we take of the bread, what we're saying is that we have taken in the body of Jesus Christ that was offered on the cross for us. When we drink of the cup, what we're saying is that we now are drinking in symbolically of the blood that was shed on the cross for our sins. Basically, we're acknowledging that, we're accepting that, we're um, reminding ourselves of that, and most importantly, giving Christ the first place in our life. So let's pray, and we'll have the ushers come forward to pass out the communion elements. And when they do, just hang on to it, and we'll take it together. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for these wonderful, amazing people who have come to hear, to worship, to learn, to grow, to be a part of what you're doing. I pray, Lord, now as we take communion, that our hearts would be sensitive and open to hearing you and to worshiping you. And I pray, Lord, that This would be a great reminder of this incredible faith that we have in Christ. And so as the ushers are passing out the communion, as you're sitting in your seat, just stay there, close your eyes, fellowship with God, pray, enjoy this time. We just have a few minutes, so it won't be long. But let this just be an amazing time that you have to spend with the Lord. And then hang on to the communion, then we'll take it all together at the end.
as we hold these elements, it is that reminder, like Matthew, of the greatest thing that could ever happen to a human being. And that's that God would die for their sins. As we hold these elements, that's what we're reminding ourselves of. That Jesus gave his body and shed his blood for you and I. That all who would receive him as their Lord and Savior would have eternal life. By faith that we access what Jesus has done. And so let's all remember our amazing Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who gave his body and shed his blood. Let's partake of the bread together. And the cup together. Let's all stand. We're going to sing one last song as we leave. If anybody this morning would like prayer about anything, I'll be up front for you. If you'd like to come up for prayer, is here and has never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I'd encourage you now to cry out to Him and ask Him to forgive you. And I encourage you to do that now. Let's worship the Lord. You guys, we'll see you at 1.30 for the baptism. Try not to eat lunch if you can hold off.